Listen up, sinners. This is Kyle from Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. We're going to be honest with you. We're fully aware you're filthy, immoral deviants, which is why we're offering a new service to our listeners. Indulgences. So here's how it works. You give us money, you don't burn an internal hellfire. Now, for tax purposes, we need to be a little creative with the transaction. So visit patreon.com slash trrpod and subscribe for as little as a dollar a month and know you'll still find the pearly gates. Guess you'll also get bonus content like early episode access and roundtable conversations, but you're monsters. You know you need this. There's a reason that Boney M was really the only band that made a popular song about Rasputin. Like, I... Whenever you think of popular songs, I think you're confusing them with good. No, but like, <laughs> it, it's, it was admittedly a very popular song in the late 70s, 79 and 80. I'm Googling Rasputin. Well, you only... Here, I mean, I know there's a lot of like metal songs, but like mass market stuff. You only get one good mass market. more to yeah. to metal. Like I, I, I tell you, if if you're really famous for 200 years, you only get one mass market song. I mean, mm-hmm. look, Rock Me Amadeus with Falco. Sure. You only get one, and then it becomes super popular. Yeah, but I, I don't know. It's like you know, like Paul Jesus McCartney Christ. never had the urge to be like Gregory Rasputin. He looks for the magic that's deep down inside. It's in his cock. Like we we never. <laughs> Paul McCartney also never did disco. That is true. That is true. No so, one's perfect. So, guys, how, now that we've uh, now that we've passed the the halfway point of our series, how are you guys doing? Like, how I mean, like, how are you doing? Is everybody holding mentally? Up okay? Padres starting to fray. Hmm. Uh, it's they've only uh, they've only upped the hypertension medication twice. Hmm. <laughs> only. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why you don't see the vein that was in episode uh, two. Yeah. That that thing was pulsing. Yeah. I feel refreshed. I have no idea what you're talking about. Mm. Yeah, you're, Kyle's back from Germany, everybody. Yeah, Kyle, Kyle decided to take some time off. How, how's, how's it coming back from the, your, your people's fatherland? I miss it. it, it, it the it houses are pretty, the beer's good. Being, being called by the, the snowy white peaks of, of <sighs> Germany and the green, green forests and the urge to visit Poland and then France you, you and the Netherlands. The, you and, use the right terms. Yeah. Snowy white. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. And actually, Snowy White describes the table pretty well because this is Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I am the Padre, Michael Arnett. I'm Kyle Graper. And we are once again joined by uh, our good friend, co-host of the Thrifty Whiskey, U- Thrifty Whiskey YouTube channel and Ukra- uh, Ukrainian cruise ship enthusiast, the mighty Keith Volhop. Keith, how you doing? Doing good, and actually, I'm doing pretty good with the Rasputin stuff. So we're all we're all holding it together. I know that it's. I mean, this is a beast. It's, it's but it's also very engaging. It is like so. We we definitely have that going for us. Yeah, we're we're four. We're on a fourth episode. I'm not. We have two more to go after this. I'm not feeling tired of it. Although I'm, I think the important thing is that the listeners are not feeling tired of it. It's and not if really you are, too damn bad. It's, also not, it's <laughs> yeah. also not Heaven's Gate. Like, we're not wallowing in just misery. Not yet. yet. <clears throat> not yet. It's it's to come, but right now we're still on the pretty lighthearted shit. So, uh, 
Now we've finally set the story, I think, and we've examined the background of all the major players involved in our story, and today is the day, passing that halfway point in our series, where we finally examine what happens when the two immovable forces of Gory Rasputin on one hand and Tsar Nicholas II and Tsarina Alexandra on the other are finally smashed together and inextricably linked to one another. So this is like when we get to the Avengers in the MCU. How? Explain. All the characters are coming together. The storylines all blend. And no, no. It just didn't take us like 14 movies, right? Yeah. yeah. It, although, shockingly, we right. also haven't grossed several billion dollars doing it. But I mentioned earlier Patreon. on there, I'm just curious as to how many people have hung out like after all of our episodes for the post-credit tease. Mm. <laughs> oh, my God. We're going to have to start adding those. No, no, we're not. No. That's, no, no, we're we not. Can't, we can't even show our... I have a hard enough time coming much. up with the, with the goddamn titles of these things. Yeah. So, yeah. So, we're, we're going to examine just exactly what it was that Rasputin Wait did. I thought this whole thing was a blooper reel. <laughs> Keith, not I got a bad blooper news. reel, Keith. Did you not tell them we put this out? Oh, God. Tell who what? Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about your YouTube channel, Keith. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're going to examine just what exactly it was that Rasputin did for his new friends in incredibly high places that made him so indispensable to them and how his newfound authority and position led to him being perceived not as some eccentric curiosity, a member of some kind of, like, Russian monarchist whack pack, but instead as a bearded Svengali type figure, somebody who was manipulating the powerful to achieve his own ends. We're also going to examine whether any of this was actually true, or whether Rasputin was just continuing to force gump his way through the halls of power and rely on luck, charm, and bullshit. We'll also see just how Rasputin began to creep back into some of his old ways and started always becoming that guy at the party, and would begin to set him both himself and his closest allies up for a very great fall indeed. So before we move on with the story, of course, giving honor to our sources, we have Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs by Douglas Smith. I think you can assume that that's going to be a part of every episode. Also, Rasputin, the Untold Story by Joseph Fearman. We also have Nicholas and Alexandra, The Fall of the Romanov Dynasty by Robert Massey, and Nicholas II, Last of the Tsars by Marc Farreau. And of course, also thank you again to Dr. Alyssa Klotz from Pitt, Dr. Janie Burns from Point Park University, Dr. Erica Haber from Syracuse University, and Dr. Michael Nyberg from the U.S. Army War College for their assistance in producing this series. I still feel so, so sorry for your friends. This is just so they know to stop listening. (laughs) (laughs) This is your weekly reminder to just stop right now. So, any points of order before we get down to the story, gents? No, I mean, I I think... Oh, where's my whiteboard? Oh, 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 dear. The whiteboard's still here. By the way, you will note, Kyle, while you were gone, it is blank. She is perfectly look, blank. I'm seeing Pristine. some erase marks here. No. And you no, thought you, it, it, they were erase marks that you made. You thought friend. we were just going to be goofy while you were gone, that we'd just be horsing around? <laughs> Don't do this to me, man. Don't do this to me, man. It's not okay. It's not okay. Putting in the other two episode mulligans that we didn't use. Yeah, it's two mulligans true. for the series. It's not per episode. That's per series. I saw it yeah. each episode. Oh no, did. Jesus no, Christ! No, no, no. We could be looking at eighteen dick jokes. No, I don't want to. I don't want to reinforce Michael. You guys have no idea what's coming in episode six. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I don't want to mess. We with We might Michael. have to have an extra ration yeah. just to break down what's going to happen. I just. The, the, I don't want to mess with Michael's reward centers that much. You know. I'm afraid of his reward center messing with our YouTube or our, our Google hits. <laughs> well, we could certainly get a lot more of them. 
Yeah, that is true. So, shall we begin? From the personal diary of Tsar Nicholas II, 1st November 1905. Tuesday. A cold, windy day. The water has frozen in patches from the shore to the end of our canal. Was occupied all morning. Dined with Princes Orlov and Racine. Went for a walk. At four o'clock we went to Sergeyevka. Had tea with Militsa and Stana. We made the acquaintance of a man of God. Grigori, from Tobolsk province. Lay down this evening, and then worked a great deal, and spent time with Alex. End quote. This short, sto- this short entry is one of only two official records of the first meeting of the Tsar and Tsarina with Grigory Rasputin at Peterhof Palace. Now, how exactly this meeting came about, we don't exactly know, but several theories abound. Two of the primary guesses are that the invitation to the palace for tea was secured either through the Crow sisters, the Grand Duchesses of Montenegro, the Tsar's cousins, remember those rich goth girls that were obsessed with Rasputin and the occult, or perhaps through the recommendation of Archimandrite Feofon, Rasputin's friend and backer and the royal couple's confessor. I think it was probably both forces at work. I think it was the Grand Duchess Crow's sister Melitza who brought him along because the cousin of the Tsar is far more likely to get the okay to bring some random holy man to tea, but I'm sure that Feofon made mention of Rasputin and what he believed to be his knowledge and powers to either the Tsar or the Tsarina. More, more likely the Tsarina, I think. Now, if this, was, if this were in Pittsburgh, it'd be... Hey, this is Nick. I just hung out, took a walk, went down a legion with my buddy Stan, met this dude named Greg. Seems like a cool cat. I might hang out with him in futures. Maybe catch a Stiller game. Tsar Nicholas II, 1st November, 1905. <laughs> <laughs> However, there are some conspiracy theories that abound that the introduction of Rasputin to the Tsar was pushed by groups working in a shadowy way to influence things. Now, some say that the introduction was brought on by a cabal of Orthodox clergymen, of whom Feofan was a member, who wanted, him, who wanted to bring Russian holy men closer to the imperial couple in order to box out and reduce the influence of foreign mystics, especially French ones, like the ones we mentioned in the previous episode, Papu and Monsieur Philippe. Um, also, I want to interject a slight correction now to the last episode. While the information I had at the time showed that Monsieur Philippe was banished from court by the Tsar after failing to provide Alex with a son... I found a document that may indicate that he was driven out by the recommendation of several high advisors because according to a letter from Prince Racine, one of Nicholas's cousins and closest advisors, they were worried that his magical invisibility hat and his psychic fluids were, quote, tools of the magic of the international Jew. Huh. So. But Russia has always had such a warm and welcoming relationship with people of the Jewish faith. Yes, they have. Yeah, If, if nothing else, this indicates just how many different forces are at work here. Um, so other people are convinced that the introduction was made either by far-right or far-left groups operating to influence a specific political agenda that is too long and too boring to get into right here. But while both types of groups were certainly at work in Russia at the time, it's unlikely that Rasputin was tied to any one specific cause. And what's interesting about this meeting is that the official diary of the Imperial Equerries Office, the people who did the scheduling for the Tsar set aside half an hour for this tea. It ended up going for three hours. Hmm. Now, we have no idea what they talked about, but it was said that Alex immediately fell under Rasputin's spell, but Nicholas wasn't quite so easily swayed, probably because he was a little more uncomfortable around a peasant who took such a familiar tone with someone in so high a position. However, even he came around quite quickly to somebody who dared to instruct the emperor himself on what sort of advice to seek and advise him on matters of state. 
as a letter sent by Rasputin to the Tsar four days after their first meeting shows. <laughs> Quote, Great Emperor, Tsar, and Autocrat of all Russia, greetings to you. May God give you sage advice. When the advice comes from God, the soul rejoices, our joy is genuine, but if it is stiff and formal, then the soul becomes despondent and our head is confused. All of Russia worries. She has descended into a terrible argument. She trembles in joy and rings her bells calling for God, and God sends us mercy and scares our enemies with awe-inspiring threats. So they, the mad ones, are now left with a broken vessel and a foolish head. As the saying goes, the devil has been busy for a long time, but finally ended up flying off from under the back porch. Such is the power of God and his miracles. Don't disdain our simple words. You as our master and we as your subjects must do our best. We tremble and pray to God to keep you safe from all evil, to protect from all wounds, now and in the future, so that your life will forever flow like a life-giving spring. End quote. Now I want us to take notice of what the letter didn't say. It, mainly that it makes no mention of the things that Rasputin is known, most known for being associated with the royal family. The little Tsarevich, Alexei, the heir to the throne, is not mentioned, nor is Alexandra, even though she was present. And there's no reason for us to assume that anybody had mentioned Rasputin as a possible healer of little Alexei's hemophilia, because anybody who would have introduced Rasputin to the Tsar didn't know about Alexei's hemophilia. Mm -hmm. The number of people who did know was extraordinarily small, and even close public and even close family members, like the Crow sisters, weren't aware of the little boy's condition, let alone the public at large. After the meeting, Nicholas asked one of his closest advisors who had been present in the room what he thought of the big bearded peasant mystic, and the advisor simply responded that he thought Rasputin to be, quote, insincere, unbalanced, and suffering from an inflamed brain. It would soon become clear, however... I'm going to use that. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, insincere, that's spelled I-N. I, I got this, just because I have brain damage. <laughs> like, just because I am, in fact, suffering from an inflamed brain. I didn't forget how to spell. Yeah. It would soon become clear, however, that Nicholas and Alexandra would see something there that this particular advisor did not. Yeah, Alexandra saw that, you know, did you see what was hanging out the end of his Cossack? <laughs> Jesus, Mike. He was walking through the snow and it was dragging. <laughs> did he have a third foot? Thumping <laughs> it on the steps as he's walking up. Ow, 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 ow. Why didn't he pick up that broom? <laughs> hey, look, he shoveled the walk for us. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that we're angling for the highbrow right out of the gate, fellas. I love that. So, why Just all I'm saying yeah. is that whenever you see one set of footprints with a huge cock mark in the snow... It means that Rasputin carried you. It's when Rasputin carried you. Carried you. <laughs> <laughs> so, God damn it. I, oh, I hate it so much. So I, I do all this writing, and I just try and try and just... What did you learn? That I live never in, try. Never try. <laughs> yeah. Just, I just have to accept that I live in a world of dick jokes. And then I show up here. So why did Rasputin carry such immediate appeal to the Tsar and Tsarina? The first reason is something we've already discussed in this series. The novelty of this long-haired, bushy-bearded peasant holy man making his way into the heavily starched, protocol-driven world of the upper aristocracy with his wild eyes and his slightly bumbling, brusque manner that would make all of them go, Oh, how interesting. Now, you also have that abiding belief that a peasant's connection to God was a pure connection to God, that, what, that it wasn't interfered with by church business or politics, 
that if a peasant's simple brain could process that connection, then the signal must be very, very clear. And it really is God speaking through this simple goat-smelling shit-kicker from Siberia. But there's other reasons as well. With Pri- a bump on his head. Yeah. <laughs> That's still possibly my favorite Rasputin story. Everybody thinks he has a horn because he's evil. It's just because he got drunk and tried to steal a fence piece by piece. I want to know how much of the fence he got. That's a, oh, I hope it was like a lot of the fence. You know, people say if you can invent, if, if time travel was invented, what would you go back in time and do? And a lot of people are like, oh, I kill baby Hitler. Or yet, da, da, da. No, I want to watch Rasputin steal the fence when he's hammered. That's all I want to watch. But, yeah, there's other reasons that the Tsar and Tsarina would have been drawn to Rasputin as well. Primarily among these being that the very religious Alexandra was convinced that God was angry with her, as evidenced by the endless series of daughters. And then when she finally has a son, he's inherited her hemophiliac gene and has what at the time amounts to a terminal condition. That's that's what she gets for converting from Lutheranism to Orthodox. Oh, God, here we go again. (laughs) Or or fucking her cousin. I I mean... Wait, she didn't... Well, I mean, I they... T- hmm. Hold on. Victoria, I'm Victoria is... I'm, run, oh, I'm running through family trees in my head, and it's like I'm... Victoria, cl- I'm, it's like Victoria I'm into and the Nick matrix. are, what is it, second cousins twice removed or something? It would have been twice removed because it was on her side. And, mm-hmm. yeah, and Alexandra wasn't that... Twice removed, but Victoria was Alexandra's <laughs> grandmother. Oh, yeah. God, I don't know. I'm getting a headache again. So there you go. But just a little. Ugh. I think Reunited about it. I get... and it feels so good. Just saying, we're we're we're, we're talking about cousins. I, I think about it, and my my head hurts, and I start to smell <laughs> ozone. So we're just going to move on. So her religious guilt is also aggravated by what's occurring in the Russian state. The endless body blows to the monarchy from the ass kicking at the hands of the Japanese and the unrest that encompassed the 1905 revolution are clear signs to her that not only is she being punished by God for her transgressions, whatever those may be, but so are the Russian people and the Tsarist regime. She's not a good enough Christian, and so the 2nd Pacific Squadron gets blasted to shit at Tsushima, and her husband is forced to grant limited freedom of speech and the freedom of the press. And so, and the... Also highly religious, Nicholas, though he's not as religious and laden with guilt as his wife, has to be feeling the same way. That God is punishing him for something by making his rulership rather harder than it needs to be. It's also entirely possible that both of them see Rasputin as someone who can not only who can bring not only a connection with God, but simply some advice and comfort at a time when both of them are sure to be pretty stressed out, that he's becoming some kind of big, wild-eyed therapeutic tool for them to use to feel better. He's also just different. He's nothing like any of yeah. the men of God they've been interacting with, which clearly hasn't been solving their problems. Yeah, but in comes this wild-eyed presence, and they're just who apparently was quite sociable. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're used to the Archimandrite Theophon, who, even though he has a pretty cool name, I think yeah, we all agree on that. Sounds like he's yeah. from like Dune. Yeah. Uh, it's kind he of. He sounds a, like an MCU villain. <laughs> kind of a stuffy dude. That's definitely a Phase yeah. Six thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's going to be debuted at next year's Comic Con. So, and I I don't want to sound like I'm being too hard on Nicholas and Alexandra. Both of them have their shortcomings, but I actually find both of them to be pretty sympathetic characters. You know, they absolutely love the hell out of each other. This much is clear, and they both clearly love the hell out of their kids. And all of this is at a time when aristocratic marriages are often cold, loveless affairs of political expediency and public propriety, and raising one's children is supposed to happen from a detached distance through nannies and governesses. 
Now, Nicholas, as far as we know, never took a mistress, something Russian czars were expected and encouraged to do. And as far as autocratic rulers go at this time period, I don't go too hard on Nicholas because he's a product of his time and his station. And he, You could make the same argument, though, that, what, 120 years before with um, um, Louis the uh, Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they were products of their station, and they obviously loved each other, and yeah. they were just completely so far removed from everyday yeah. life. And you're so insulated from it. It's not like people are trying to show them what's going on and they're ignoring it. People exactly. are trying to keep them separate from the truth of what life is like for the common person. Right. And, and Nicholas genuinely wants to do right by Russia and wants to be seen as a good and benevolent ruler, but this clashes with the stuff he's been filled with since birth about the divine right of kings, and which is still being fed to him by his advisors when he's in his 40s, and it's also clashing with the long-instilled ideas of the nature of Russian leadership. You know, he wants to be a small-c conservative and a reformer at the same time. And not end up on a bed where his legs are blown off like his grandfather. Exactly. This plays a lot into his consciousness, mm. watching half of granddad tell him, be a good boy for me. It's, you know... That still gets It me. wasn't even like, be a good boy for me. It was like, be a good boy for, the, the, for the empire. Yeah. <laughs> hey... Like, Hey. Like, be a good boy. <laughs> no, really. You like you got to be good at this. Hey, Zeto Alex, you ain't got no legs. <laughs> Except at this point, as he, he just looks has like, like a, an army of people yeah. just changing him into different uniforms <laughs> as he's just like bleeding out. Yeah. He this looks is like one of the main... worst cases of cut in half I've ever seen. <laughs> he looks like the main character from the one music video. It, it's yeah. it, but he just looks like if Lieutenant Dan was the guy who tried to fight that mountain lion that we right. always used to talk about, like. He, like, yeah, imagine, and he's 13. Exactly. That. So that, that, that had to play a role in Nicholas's leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he's and also. Where, where he saw himself. Yeah. And he's also caught between his ideals of leadership and the voices of advisors who are ambitious and have their own vision for what the office of the Tsar is supposed to be about. And he's ruling at a time when the faults in the Russian social systems finally had the technological and social means to come home to roost. In another time or in another country, he might have been a good ruler. You know, but, but the guy just didn't have the chops to make it at the time and place where he sat. So it doesn't surprise me that they jive with what a figure like Rasputin brings to the table, and I don't blame them for it. They're going to take all the help they can get, or at least Nicholas is. However, after this first meeting, there would not be another for quite some time. Rasputin returned after this first visit to his hometown of Prokoskoya in Siberia, except now he was coming back as a very different person. Did he walk there or steal a horse? <laughs> no, no record of that. I assume because he was—he didn't come alone. He probably didn't steal a horse. <laughs> he was traveling with a retinue at the time. Yeah. Well, in his his horse thieving days. So were, his retinue. Stole well, and he was—he was a changed man after his uh, exp- his religious experiences. He wasn't stealing horses anymore. He might go back to it. We'll come to that later. But he wasn't stealing horses at this point. Yeah, and he's yeah he's not instead of coming back as the wandering starets coming home foot sore and filthy and alone, he returned via a first-class rail car with a small entourage of, clerg- of clergy, underlings of the Archimandrite Feofon, who sought to expand their religious community into Siberia, using this new acquaintance of the Tsar to leverage influence, and of course, when they returned, they all just rolled up on, on Rasputin's wife, kids, and parents, all still living in one household, and Rasputin's long-suffering wife, Praskovia, took them in, fed them, and gave them all places to sleep. 
It was kind of like the end of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when Johnny Depp and uh, Ed, uh, Ed, Ed, that, that little kid from August Rush. Are you doing the remake, you Philistine? Wow. I just don't want to talk about Grandpa Joe yeah. from the first one because well, I'm just no, going to get pissed what off. What I'm yeah. saying is that they, 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 they all walk into the, into the house with one room and like you know now he's a multi-trillionaire. <laughs> yeah. So actually, yeah, you're 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 closer than I want to admit. And ra- <laughs> as Rob begrudgingly agrees with the remake, yeah, Rasputin's return meant that he was now more metaphorically this time a big swinging dick around town. Now I'm not sure that if he rolled back alone, anybody would have believed him. But since he now had a coterie of hype men with him, telling people that what he'd been up to, the people of his village are now going, "Hang on, he knows the Czar." And with this new level of status came some benefits. The Rasputin household was quickly expanded. With the help of the local churches, the house was added onto and quickly became one of the largest in town. Rasputin got a lot of favors, but with those favors came a lot of free access to food and drink. And Rasputin had pretty much been on the wagon since about 1897, since his big pilgrimage and his revelatory experiences. And though people saw him as somewhat weird, he was at least weird and sober. That soon changed. Now, he wasn't quite back to his old ways yet of drinking entirely too much and going out to cause problems in true dirtbag style. Stealing fences and what have you. Yeah. It, it, I mean, if, if there they were, were catalytic... They were giving him fences now. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. Like, yeah. they're lucky there were no catalytic converters around at the time because he <laughs> right. definitely would have been going for those. It's... But with the strong vodka back in his life, you know, the kind of shit you can melt a wagon wheel in, the door had been opened. And both... The, it was the... It, it, it was the 1905 equivalent or 19, early 1900s equivalent of an eight ball. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. And both the booze and his new public recognition also led him back into another old behavior, becoming something of a sexy beast when it came to the local ladies. And while some people think that he'd already gotten into this habit when he was leading his own little congregation before his journey to the big city, I think that's probably just rumor that developed after the fact. However, poor Proscovia... Took it all in stride, believing that her husband's relationship with God demanded that he engage in sin so as better to rid himself of it, and just referred to his boozing and his coxmanship as his burden, his cross to bear. You know he had one buddy when they all rolled in on that rail car that walked up to like the high advisors. Let me tell you guys about the Klitschke. And <laughs> <laughs> just like walked them away into a root cellar. Uh, uh, yeah, it, well, and, and we'll, we'll discover mostly in the next episode how the Cleasty rumors come back to haunt him. But just because Rasputin wasn't in St. Petersburg anymore didn't mean he was just sitting and hoping to be summoned by the Tsar. There was an ongoing correspondence between Rasputin and the royal couple, as he could by now write pretty well, and, the, and, and these letters contained more religious advice and advice on matters of state, but they also served to continue enhance, to enhance Rasputin's rustic charm in Nick and Alex's eyes. Now, in these letters, some of which still survive... Rasputin refers to the two as Batyuska and Matuska, meaning little father and little mother. And he also uses the informal version of you when referring to either of them. Russian has an, a, both a formal and an informal version of you, much like French does, but no one is allowed to use the informal version when referring to the imperial couple, except maybe their own kids and closest relatives and other monarchs, so this really does make their relationship with Rasputin at this, even at this early point stand out. Now, at some point, one of them made mention uh, uh, to him of Alexei, 
Because after about April of 1906, Rasputin's letters to Alexandra start to mention the heir to the throne quite frequently. Now this is the wife of the ruler dropping what amounts to an official state secret on a guy they've met once. So he must have been really doing something to earn their trust with these letters. Now that's if they... At, <laughs> God, what are... Michael, do, do, we need to, do we need to explain what that sound means, Robert? I know what that's. I know <laughs> okay. that, I, I was, I'm pretty I was sure unsure. what I know what that sounding supposed to. I be. know what that sound means. I was, <laughs> I was unsure as to uh, where we're going. I know. I I, 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 I may not be the biggest degenerate at this table, but that's not saying much. So, now that's if they actually told Rasputin about the boy's condition, because we've seen that Rasputin is very good at reading people, and this skill may. have also have extended to letters where he picks up that they're concerned about the heir for some reason, even if he doesn't know the whole story. In July of 1906, Rasputin gets a telegram inviting him back to St. Petersburg for another meeting with Nick and Alex because they had need of his counsel, and he had commissioned an icon of his favorite saint, Simeon of Verkatoya, as a gift for the royal couple. On the 18th of July, he meets with them for a second time in what's supposed to be an hour-long lunch that goes on for over six hours, and he meets with them again in October, spending nearly a whole day with the royal family, including the children for the first time, who were all quite charmed by the big beard, by the big weird beardy man. And it does seem that Rasputin had a way with kids, both his own and other people's, because anyone who met him in their childhood had glowing things to say about him later in life, about how friendly and how nice he was. Now, the October meeting was different, though, because this is almost certainly the time where Rasputin learned for sure about little Alexei's condition. This signals a true shift in the nature of Rasputin's relationship to the royals, because he now has knowledge of something that perhaps 30 people know about for sure. And all those 30 people are sworn to state secrecy. It may not even have been that many. may not even have been that many. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm highballing it. Right. I'm being generous here. And these are people who are attended by a lot of... Of people. Yeah. There's a lot of something's wrong with the, with the Tsitsarovich, everybody out of the room. Yeah. So, but that's not the only indicator. Nicholas and Alexandra's correspondences with each other when they were apart, or with their close friends and advisors, shift from referring to Rasputin as Brother Grigory of Tobolsk or the Tobolsk Holy Man to simply Grigory, Grishka, or most commonly, our friend. <laughs> but as 1906 turned into 1907, Rasputin started getting more and more attention from circles who didn't exactly have his best interest at heart. Though he was known in some circles of the aristocracy, he wasn't at this point universally known to everyone, and so there was a whole bunch of people looking out at this Kruskoth who's now hanging out with the highest family in the land and going, uh, who the fuck is this guy? And investigations into Rasputin start immediately after his third meeting with the royal couple, both in St. Petersburg with the Tsarist secret police and with more provincial police forces closer to Rasputin's Siberian home. And it wasn't just law enforcement and the high muckety-mucks who took notice of his sudden presence as part of the royal entourage. <clears throat> After the 1905 revolution, some of Nicholas's immediate reforms included more freedom of the press, and this, and this reform immediately came with the rise of tabloid newspapers in Russia, which started to report on this mysterious new hanger-on in the imperial household. An excerpt from an article titled The Siberian Prophet, attributed later to a priest named uh, Nikolai Drozdov reads thus when it appeared in a January 1907 edition of the New Sunday Evening Newspaper, quote, There is a man from Siberia in the capital who has earned himself the lofty title of a holy man among his followers. What he did to, quote, earn such glory and honor we cannot explain, frankly speaking. 
Let's hope, let's hope that those who performed the, quote, canonization of this saintly man, who was not canonized by the official church, will perform their sacred duty to point out the, quote, holy aspects of the Siberian newcomer's life and teachings. Our task is different. We would like to make public the doubts and unpleasant surprises that this man raises with some of his actions. This Siberian, quote, saint has a strange habit of hugging and kissing women he talks to, even if he is seeing them for the first time. He accompanies his speech with gestures and body movements that have deservedly been called, quote, grimacing and, quote, apery by one lady who rejected his moves to kiss her. Sometimes this, quote, saint enters such an ecstatic state that he acts like he is possessed or raving mad. This is how some skeptics explain some of the photographs of this man. What sort of behavior is this, this hugging and kissing? Why is it necessary? The admirers of the, quote, saint would naturally explain this, quote, manner benevolently as an excessive feeling of love for his female companions and call this kissing, quote, holy kissing, which is normal among great starezzi such as Serafim of Sarov and Ambrose of Optina. Naturally, we do not dare say that the Siberian, quote, prophet must be some kind of mystic sectarian, but there is no doubt that in his, quote, poses and movements, in his kisses and handshakes, there is something quite different from our holy starezzi. The prophet is not that old. This is the first thing, and the second thing is that he is a layman and a married man. It's unbecoming of him to mimic the kisses of hermits who had rejected the world with all its passions and lust. The kisses of Starezzi were given, I believe, with great consideration and didn't arouse the feeling expressed by one maiden about the kisses of the Siberian pilgrim. Quote, These kisses and squeezes are disgusting. The kisses of Starezzi are filled with the soul and the body and fill it with health, peace, and holy joy. While the kiss of the Siberian pilgrim supposedly, quote, mimicking the Staretsi and with the help of loyal accomplices, resulted in one young woman with a natural inclination to hysteria to leave her parental home, and not only without regret or sadness, but with joy about the benefits of her new life and with curses towards her parents' home where she had everything she needed, from her daily bread to reasonable freedom in her life and faith. That evil demon settled in her soul after she met and talked with the Siberian prophet and his admirers. The warm parental home became unpleasant to the young woman after, in the bizarre words of the prophet and his followers, quote, a new soul began to grow inside her. She, quote, ran away from her parents' home, literally as if that home had turned into a Greek Sodom for her. In reality, I want to stress this fact, her family taught her nothing remotely Sodom-like. She wanted to have freedom, like the famous son from the biblical story. God prevent that this freedom leads to, quote, the death of her soul, or to the destruction of of all hope. And then he straightened his bow tie and went to dinner with Matt Getz. <laughs> I just love that it, it becomes the Tarantino interpretation of yeah. like a virgin. That he just <laughs> fucks this chick so good that like she sees a different god yeah. and just fucks off. Well, I, I, I like this quote. There's something weirdly like Father Coglin like about it, and it kind of shows you that there really is nothing new under the sun. No, as soon as you give freedom of press, we immediately prove why we should not be trusted with freedom of trust. <laughs> so why did Rasputin become so close to the royal family so quickly? What was it exactly that he did that made him so indisposable to them? And how did he go from a one-time curiosity visit to a daily presence in less than a year? We'll investigate that a little more after we take a quick break.
Tired of listening to whiskey tubers talk about whiskeys you'll never see? Want to hear reviews about whiskeys you can actually afford? How about something you can truly find on the shelf? Are you looking for honest, unbiased feedback about the whiskeys in your budget? Then join us on YouTube at Thrifty Whiskey. Here at Thrifty Whiskey, we do blind tastings of whiskeys that are $30 and under. Bourbon. Scotch. Irish. Indian. And even Canadian. So catch us at Thrifty Whiskey. And until then, may the winds of fortune sail you. May you sail a gentle sea. May it always be the other guy who says, This This drink's on me. Welcome back, and we're going to kick it over to Chris Miller for our Estonia fact of the episode. So, my friends, as we all know, as, uh, well, at least as we sit here in the kitchen now, as residents of the Northern Hemisphere, it gets quite cold in the winter. Mm. And Estonia, being a country comprised mostly of islands, uh, whenever it is cold enough and the seas freeze over, not only can you drive from island to island, they have posted speed limits and road signs. Really? They do, which is Very absolutely nice. fascinating. Now, here's the follow-up now, question. Uh, potentially, we will see fewer and fewer roads and road signs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's as, but, uh, as... as of right now, uh, yeah, you, they are, they are uh, marked roads with speed limits. Huh. Now, you may not know this, but I have a follow-up question. Do the speed limit signs, are they... In the water, on particularly long sign poles, or no, they lay, they sit them out. They on the sit ice. them out on the yes. ice. Okay, yes, they are temporary markers. Temporary, and also, I mean, good. technically speaking, They're probably sandwich roads. boards. Yeah, yeah, probably, or yeah. just like the construction signs we see here that have like the H bases on them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good for them. Inventive yeah. people, the Estonians. Yeah. I mean, like, Estonia is not the only country in the road with with ice roads. Or no, but, my, my, my only But with posted is, speed I limits mean, and right. road signs? Yeah, that's... I mean, when you're rolling through there, you're going to get... of, we, like, like, super over-the-top dramatic history channel shows about said ice roads. Mm, that is well, true. I, I mean, at what point... I mean, what is it? Probably, I'm going to guess end of May, maybe June. At what point are you going, yeah, we're going to go over to Bubba's for Sunday dinner. Eh, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> well, you maybe, just have to take the boat. Yeah. Maybe we get the ferry. <laughs> that's that's got to suck, though. You're, you're pressing your luck a little too late in the year, and you just hear crack. Blah, 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 and that's, uh, it gives that's you a bad way to go. Excuse. Yeah. You buy a duck, that way you got both bases covered. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. I wanted one of those duck boats so bad. They <laughs> oh, never went gorgeous. up for like public sale whenever the, the Pittsburgh ducky tours went on. So those I'm all sure went they the, sold them to another company. Uh, yeah. Actually, but, most of the Pittsburgh ones went to private World War II collectors that are refurbishing them. As, oh. Yeah, they never went up for public sale. Uh, probably because they got a shitload of emails. Yep. Oh, yeah. A lot of interest. So, shall we continue with the story? I mean, unless you guys want to talk about... like. Uh, you know, hydro boats and ice road trucking. I mean, I'm happy mm. to do it, but we are here for a reason. That's true. Yeah, we're not the History Channel. Yeah. We're not going to spend the next two hours talking about Aliens things that aren't history. Man. So on June 19th, 1907, something terrible was happening to little Setsarevich Alexei, heir to the Russian throne. The toddler had bumped into something, as toddlers so often do because they have tiny bodies and giant heads, despite the small group of sailors that constantly surrounded him to prevent such a thing. Michael, your thoughts? Um, abusing sailors as bodyguards? Well, I'm kind of okay with that, but these are veterans of the 2nd Pacific Squadron. Mm, maybe not, because I'm not sure anybody from the 2nd uh, Pacific Squadron would have made it back to Russia by correct. this point. Yeah. This was at the same time, wasn't it? 
Uh, no, this was been, a couple years a, after. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. They didn't. They they weren't quite concurrent. But. Plus, there there weren't that many sailors from the Second Pacific Squadron left after the Japanese finished with the Second. I'm Pacific just Squadron. saying that. We're, the, we're, we're, I'm just saying that the guy that yeah. bought two thousand opium cigarettes in Madagascar might not be the best babysitter. That is true, and something tells me he survived. Unless you want because, a cool fucking baby, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although something tells me he survived because you know what? That sounds like a resourceful guy. Yeah, probably. So. Sounds like a guy that stayed in Madagascar. Yeah. <laughs> just, 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 just dressed like Captain off. Ron. <laughs> just drop me off on the way back. So, yeah, so Alexei had bumped into something, and he was suffering, as hemophiliacs do, from an internal hemorrhage. The doctors had shown up, given the boy some medication, and were at a loss as to what to do to help him from, and to help stop him from wailing and screaming in pain. So Alexandra did something for the first time that would help further intertwine the futures and fortunes of two forces of history. She called up Rasputin from the bullpen. Now, this shows how desperate she was to help her son and just how much she was... I hate that you used that phrase. Because I'm just, like, thinking of Alexandra coming out of the dugout and just slapping it, <laughs> slapping her arm. <laughs> big, big chew in. <laughs> so, yeah, this shows how desperate she was to help her son and just how much she, at least, if not her husband just yet, actually trusted Rasputin. Summoned by a messenger, Rasputin arrived at the Petterhof Palace and spent several hours calmly and quietly praying and muttering over the boy. And somehow, a miracle seemed to occur. She miyagi'd him. <laughs> <laughs> the little toddler eventually stopped screaming, and then eventually stopped whimpering, and went to sleep. The next morning, his condition had improved, and he got better day by day. Little Alexei's life had been saved. Now, this incident placed Rasputin in a rank all of his own, and these aren't just hearsay stories. Hundreds of corroborating accounts over the years tell of Rasputin calming and treating the air whenever he was injured. However, no one really knows how he did it. He used soft words, prayer, calming touch, but nothing that was known to medicine at the time. He didn't cure the boy's disease, but he was able to successfully treat the boy's symptoms. He always managed to get the internal bleeding to slow, to alleviate the heir's pain and to calm him down, allowing him to improve and eventually for his internal bleeding to stop. And he sometimes didn't even need to be there. On one occasion, when Rasputin was back in Prokofskoya, when Alexei suffered an injury that led to such a severe episode of internal bleeding that he was given his last rites, a telegram arrived from a desperate Alexandra, begging the faraway mystic to please do something, anything, to stop their heir from dying. Rasputin returned the telegram with a message that he would prey upon the matter and that the boy would be just fine so long as the doctors didn't bother him too much. The Tsar ordered the doctors away and Alexei made a good recovery. In another event in 1910, Alexei was going for a carriage ride when the carriage hit a bump and the boy fell over screaming in pain as something caused an internal bleed. And he was returned to the palace and Rasputin was summoned. However, Rasputin was way too drunk to leave his house and so simply responded, basically, eh, don't worry about it, the kid will be fine within the hour. And Alexei remarkably was. So how did Rasputin do it? How he was... scared him the first time. Mm. <laughs> so here's... See, here's the whole thing. He had a little look, leftover look, look, magic. No, 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 yeah. here's my theory. Here's my theory. Fear brings vasoconstriction. <laughs> All the veins tighten up. And then every time he fell over after that, Alexander said, I'm going to go get Uncle Gregory. This has been and he was like, oh, old crazy Uncle Greg. Yeah, old crazy <laughs> Uncle Greg. And, and, you know, and, and at that point, Alexi's eyes get like big around his saucer plates. And he's, oh, shit, Uncle Greg's coming. 
Okay, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I swear I'm good. Old Uncle Greg. This has been Medical Corner with Michael and Long Jack. hair I'm and so clear. shaggy beard, just drunk and touching on him. It's just like Thanksgiving 1998. <laughs> he's just, every once in a while, he's, if you'll every, me, every once in a while, the therapist. wind blows and he sees that third leg. <laughs> so Rob, it's like one of Miss Krabappel's tits. <laughs> not not Krabappel, it was Miss Ch- Ch- Chokes on Dick. Oh, Miss Chokes on Dick, sorry. Put some respect on it. Wrong animation, man. Yeah. So, Rob, did you happen to come across what the medication they think the doctors are giving Alexi? Well, we're going to get to that. Okay. Yeah. So, because I, yeah, y- yeah, I love this. So, it was Viagra. <laughs> Actually, that would probably be bad. So, how did Rasputin do it? How was he able to bring little Alexi back from the brink when even the most advanced doctors of the time couldn't do nothing to even alleviate the pain of a hemophilic internal bleed? There are a few competing theories, but none of which quite explain everything. Tourniquet around the neck. Mm. It was Cialis. Yeah. Now, one theory... Well, you have 36 hours in which to get better. Correct. Yeah. Now, one theory states the rest... And you end up in a bathtub. Next to somebody with a bathtub that you really, really, really want to fuck. It's... it's <laughs> the Cialis is the best thing that ever happened to the kayaking and bathtub industries. Yeah. For when the well, good you looked time at, he, hey, becomes hey, the Kyle, right you looked time. at me funny. At the end of those Cialis commercials. Those were 15 fucking years ago. It took me a second to come back. So you just, you just, I'm sorry. I haven't been to Cologne recently. (laughs) He was doing a two, he was doing a two bathtub bath with his girlfriend while in Germany (laughs) on a hill, on a, on a sparsely wooded hillside overlooking a valley. Now, one theory states that Rasputin was in cahoots with a lady-in-waiting her governess who would drug the boy to trigger an episode which resembled the effects of hemophilia, only to cease drugging him right before Rasputin arrived, in a sort of form of Munchausen by proxy. But this doesn't hold much water, as there was no drug known at the time that would effectively imitate the symptoms of hemophilia. It was sildenafil. Mm. Now, Rasputin was also known as a very talented hypnotist. I'm running out of them, man. I know yeah. there's more. I'm Googling it. <laughs> in, in the generic, generic the of is, it, is it actually does exactly what you don't want it to do. So, Rasputin was also known as a very talented hypnotist, and this is backed up by many, many witness statements, and it's said that Rasputin's skills were applied to the Setsarevich, and through hypnotic means, he was able to bring the boy into a trance-like or meditative state where his heart rate slowed slowing the internal bleeding down to a point where even a hemophiliac system could eventually catch up and clot the bleed. Now, there's something to this, as meditative or trance-like states can result in lower-than-normal heart rates, but this also doesn't explain those incidents where Rasputin was elsewhere and the boy was able to still recover. Now, some of this could also simply be explained through coincidence, but this happened several times when he was gone, and not even Rasputin is that lucky. I'm sorry. Now, one explanation is almost so simple that it's stupid. Kyle? Aspirin. Aspirin. So the theory is the medication that his doctors would give him was Mm -hmm. aspirin. As someone with a chronic internal intestinal illness that often presents itself as internal bleeding, I discovered a few years back that when you take aspirin, when you're compromised on the inside, you start flushing tremendous amounts of blood out of your body. Mm -hmm. Significant internal bleeding to the point that I made myself additionally anemic because of how much I was bleeding on the inside. And you got that nickname, the Super Soaker from Hell. Yeah. <laughs> oh God! So, so my question with this is: Did I really? Is it? Did he? Did he 
how could he have possibly known well, that did well, it, or so, was this a coincidence? Well, so here's the thing. So aspirin at the turn of the 20th century was considered like a panacea. It was considered an absolute wonder drug because it alleviated pain without knocking your ass out like laudanum or opium would. And However, aspirin can function as a blood thinner and an anticoagulant, which is something you really don't want to give a hemophiliac, especially when they've suffered a recent internal injury. So... Rasputin is telling Alexandra to have the doctors who are giving little Alexei aspirin for his pain and are unaware of its effects to leave him alone, thereby counteracting the harmful effects of the drug when it comes to the boy's hemophilia and giving him a greater chance of recovery. But then again, there's also a hole in this explanation. How would Rasputin know about the harmful effects of aspirin, which I think is what you're getting at? Mm -hmm. How would he know about the harmful effects of aspirin when the medical community wasn't even aware of these effects until three decades after our story takes place? And maybe it comes from a distrust of doctors, or maybe he just made a leap of deductive reasoning that would make Aristotle himself proud. But that either way, it still leaves a big hole in the explanation. I've got it. Rasputin was killed by the tenth doctor that didn't agree with the other nine about aspirin. I never thought <laughs> oh, of it like geez. that, Keith. But I think you might be onto something. Maybe Rasputin just was the tenth doctor. I love that. I love that, te- that Keith rolled in here with the hashtag Teach the Controversy <laughs> object objective. So. I'm just I'm just thinking about the fact that uh, Kyle just got back from Germany, just got back from Cologne, and he's jumping all up and down about aspirin. Maybe he met some of the Bayers. It is the entire city, pretty much. Hmm. Now Rasputin was doing something. It wasn't just pure luck, and the logical part of my brain refuses to believe that he was actually somebody with magical healing powers. But none of these theories explain just how it went off. The Tsar and Tsarina didn't know how he did it, the press didn't know how he did it, the doctors didn't know how he did it, and we don't know how he did it. But one explanation may hold the key. Horses. Now, when we... Easy, Padre. (laughs) We can get through this. Oh, no, he's got the thousand-yard stare. We're going to get through this. Now... (laughs) (laughs) Stronger. Oh, God. You can't smoke in the house. Now, when we talked about Rasputin's background in the first episode... No, I episode, can't smoke in the house, but I can at least hold one in my teeth. <laughs> we talked about Ras... Why is it shaking so much? So, when, when we talked about Rasputin's background in the first episode, we mentioned that he was something of a horse whisperer, that he had major horse sense and could control and calm the beasts very easily. But, in Slavic and steppe cultures, the idea of a horse whisperer is interchangeable with that of what's known as a blood stiller. If a horse is injured, you bring the horse to a blood stiller who uses their horse sense to literally still the blood of a horse to stop the bleeding. Now, one baron, Russian baroness wrote in 1906 of a man named Alexander the Horse Leech who lived on one of her estates and would massage the wound. This is freaking you do. Michael is... Horse Leech, what does that make you think about? Huh? <laughs> Kyle is okay. <laughs> stronger than this. I want, to paint, I want to paint you all a word picture right now. Kyle is braced over the whiteboard, keeping track of any any. He uh, just like dramatically took the cap off the cardinality jokes. Mike is jerking and snapping his body around, trying to contain himself. And Chris is just kind of hunched over his microphone, looking at Mike, just waiting. You can do this. No, way. no, no, no. He's my captain. My pa- hey, my. You can my, do this. My, yes, he's so, Alexander the horse leech. <laughs> who lived on? Who lived on one of this baroness's estates? And would uh, he lived on one of this baroness's estates? And he would massage the wound and use prayer and calming words to heal both the injured workhorses of the peasants and the baroness's prized racehorses. Now, as you motherfuckers snuck this up, as <laughs> the horse leech, did he use his mouth? Uh, it, 
Don't you dare! No, hey, if you're holding the, if you're holding it, you can't. If you're holding the uh, marker, you can't count it. <laughs> we have a Mexican standoff here, fellas. Anyway, she, you, you are no this, longer an impartial judge here, Kyle. However, give Keith the whiteboard. Never impartial. This, give Keith the whiteboard. <laughs> this same Russian baroness would go on to write in 1909 that Alexander the horse leech even used his blood-stilling skills on people. When after one peasant on one of her estates struck another with an axe, Alexander used the same technique on the peasant who was bleeding to death to stop the flow of blood and save the man's life. So it is possible that Rasputin was able to parlay this horse blood-stilling skill into stopping the internal bleeding of the young Setsarevich. Possible, but I never said likely. Now, what method Rasputin used didn't really matter. What mattered was that he now sat at the right hand of the emperor and the empress, but although he was entirely indispensable to the royal couple and their hemophiliac son, the re that reason was concealed from the rest of the aristocracy, the church, and the public at large. Michael's doing some deep breathing right now, I think, to calm himself down. I can be, I can be gigging. Oh. <laughs> you, just, right. you, just, you just calm yourself That's down there, buddy. Now, there are a couple other important things we have to keep in mind about Rasputin during this time period. The first is that he was not always in St. Petersburg. He spent quite a bit of time traveling back to Prokofskoya, his hometown, where by the end of the 19 knots, he was definitely the most important and influential person there. He ruled like a satyr king and had amassed quite a few followers who were willing to do his bidding. He was, however, fairly benevolent. He sheltered the few Jews in town and prevented anyone from trying to drive them out or harm them in any way, in spite of the long policy of ostracizing and pogroms the Russian Jews had been undergoing for centuries. If anyone did harm them, he would rush to their defense and claim that any further injustices would result in the perpetrator being answerable to the representative of the Tsar himself, which was, of course, Rasputin. Now, the same went for gay people. Rasputin appears to have gotten over being squicked out by homosexual activity, much as he had been dealing with when he visited monasteries, and it looked like it was his time in St. Petersburg that had done it, where homosexuality was much more open and tolerated compared to the highly religious Siberian hinterlands. That, or he just embraced his rapidly growing hedonistic side and just liked the idea of people getting down, no matter who they, how they did it or who they did it with. Now this, however, was balanced with him getting hammered shitbag wasted and trying to fuck any lady in town that would have him, which was a lot more than it used to be now that he was all buddy-buddy with the monarch. And according to some rumors, there were also some fellas in the mix as well. Now, when he was back in St. Petersburg, he spent some time in the company of the royal family, but he also did spend quite a lot of time around the rest of the aristocracy and the nouveau riche set, doing what he'd been doing that first got him the attention of people like the Crow Sisters in the first place, acting as a healer and a spiritual advisor and as a unique distraction at stuffy society parties. Now, while he tended to stay on fairly good behavior around the Tsar and Tsarina... So pretty much Dave Matthews' entire career... Before nineteen or before two thousand five, I don't mean whenever he fired all that poop onto those people. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> that's that's a more Fuck that guy. That's a more Rasputin move. So while he tended to stay on fairly good behavior around the Tsar and Tsarina in this period, in those other settings, Rasputin played things a little faster and looser. He had a habit of enjoying good vodka and good wine and becoming very flirtatious and handsy with women of high status. He didn't yet have the reputation as an absolute sex pest that he would come to have later, but he was definitely a bit of a wild guard at a party. He would have sessions with noble women where he would work to try to cure what ailed them, with intense staring from his vibrant and reflective eyes that pierced you like needles and had the green rapacious fires of a voluptuary, according to Douglas Smith. 
Now, along with the staring came intimate touch, something that was unheard of in these circles. While it may have been, may not have always been directly sexual, accounts describe the sensation of being healed, quote-unquote, by Rasputin as an intensely erotic experience. During the first five years or so of his time with the royal family, we could be sure that he had many affairs with different noblewomen, many of whom later admitted to them, uh, noblewomen of varying ranks and ages, and although some of his more famous affairs would be with widows, dowagers, or noblewomen of more advanced years. So, Nathan Lane in the remake of The Producers. Uh, pretty much, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know. He, uh... He kind of had his pick, but then, you know, along came Bialy. He, he went he, he went for him a little older. So, in addition, Rasputin was rapidly falling into the habit of regularly visiting sex workers, and as he became wealthier and better known, he would use that money and influence to arrange more and more orgiastic experiences. Although, we'll get into some of the worst of the worst in the next episode, because he was just getting started around this time. And around this same time, the tabloids started reporting on his activities. Now, rarely would full names be used, but addresses, so referring to Rasputin as the man who lives at number so-and-so Severnaya Street, <laughs> or distinctive features, would be used instead as a shorthand. And these tabloids would often display a weird propriety when referring to anyone availing themselves of the services of sex workers, referring to the sex workers as ballet dancers. Although I haven't quite figured out whether this was some sort of industry standard code, or whether this was there was actually some crossover between the St. Petersburg ballet dancer community and sex work. I'd believe it. Yeah. It's also not the first time that we've talked about sex workers using a different yep. job title. Yeah. Um, what was it? Uh, they were, um, in, in our Justinian series, they were uh, actors. Actors, yeah. Yes. Actors who, at intermission, would have sex with you. Yeah. But they're, you know, well, even always... when, you, when you talk about America prostitution in the, in the 19th century... They had the blue books, which, yep. you know, the, the books never said anything about prostitution, but they would tell you exactly who the names were, exactly how to get a hold of these addresses. Refer to and, th referring to things in terms like hospitality. Right. But there's, you know, there's always been that kind of euphemistic vocabulary around sex work. Like in, in medieval England, uh, prostitution was only allowed to happen on the south bank of the Thames. And all the people that operated down there, all the sex workers down there, were referred to for centuries as Winchester geese. And they'd only be referred to by that. That became like kind of the... Well, because all the all the, the, the cat houses were run by the Bishop of Winchester. Well, that and the so. uh, the Queen owned all the swans, so... Mm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that may have what happened? Been, Got into a fight with a honestly, Winchester that, geese, broke my arm. That, that may have been like a tongue-in-cheek way... Of referring to, like, is, right. is getting one over on the queen. Right, exactly. Yeah. So these social calls and quote-unquote healing sessions with the upper crust became Rasputin's main means of supporting himself while being a spiritual advisor to the Tsar and Tsarina paid more in prestige. Now, he would take gifts and cash for his services to the upper crust, but never from the royal family. That would be considered improper, even for a peasant like him. And it would instead leverage his connections for, for, with the royal family for free services at bars and restaurants, free rides and train fares, or as a means to open himself up to more noble women to heal and receive payments, either in currency or in carnality. He had his routine job and he had his special job, sort of like how Chris goes to work at a bar every night, but every so often he has a big wedding gig or private events where, you know, those are a little more high profile. 
Book Chris Miller for all your event bartending needs. Or I'm a Winchester goose. Mm. I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> or, honk, or your orgies. Follow me on my lonely fans. Because <laughs> right, right now it's just me. Famous St. Petersburg ballet dancer Chris Miller. <laughs> so when, when the cops show up when you're on patrol, do you just honk at them and then shit on the ground? <laughs> That's usually why they, they're there. <laughs> like, this man won't stop honking and shitting. So... And that's why I can't drink you, vodka anymore. And you still owe me a pair of shoes, dude. <laughs> so all this talk of Rasputin and his sex life, I guess naturally brings us to the question that history and Boney M have had us asking for over a century. Was Rasputin really the lover of the Russian queen? Almost certainly the answer is no. I hate to say it, it's a fun idea, but... Almost entirely as, no. As we will find out as this goes on, this was probably done as a smear. Because, oh, absolutely. Because Grigory yeah. Rasputin was not the most popular man in the world. <laughs> no, he was not. Right. But Alexander And he was stinky. Yeah. Uh, not at this debated. point. Yeah, at well, this actually, point, no. It's, it's debated because he was actually a surprisingly vain man. He spent a lot of time in bathhouses. If he smelled like anything, it was it was booze and tobacco and right. And I mean, fumes. like yeah. After after his nights out, he yeah. probably didn't smell great. But I don't know a lot of people that leave the bar that smell fantastic. But yeah, people said that Rasputin bathed daily. Yeah, it was probably a that, Soviet yeah. smear way, decades Soviet after the smear. fact that or, or even at the time. I mean, or he had his fair share of enemies. Yeah. I mean, That's true. as that is we true. will learn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's already in the tabloids and yeah. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger from there. But we'll get into that in part five. Now, Alexandra's religiosity, her genuine and intense love for Nicholas, the propriety required of her position, being in the public eye, and just the gulf of difference in background, lifestyle, and position make it highly, highly unlikely that even if she saw a sexual appeal in Rasputin, that she would ever act on it. He probably also wasn't quite stupid enough to cross that line. No. I I don't think any of us have ever at any point implied that Rasputin was stupid. No, He's a no, smart no, no. man. No. There's a there's a, an intelligence to him, and maybe it's a more base and animal intelligence. Yeah, he sometimes comes across as a, a chaos entity, but I yeah. he had wherewithal. Yeah, but that's and, the, I mean, that's the eternal question. Or, well, I mean, the, the giant question yeah. is when you are faced with, in, in the face of that much power, and you're trying to apply that power... What boundaries can you push until you get to the right. point where it's going to blow up in your face? And I only say that because, Kyle, you just stated because what you just said was, I don't think he would cross that line. Yeah. I mean, where do you go when all the power in the world, all the power in the the list of... He might try to... Czar, you know... Rasputin is a guy who might try to push it. Mm. He might be. He might be like, I'm the guy who gets to put his hand on the Tsarina's lower back. It wouldn't even surprise me if he wanted to prove he like, was the guy who could have fucked the Tsarina. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Their relationship yeah. was different. It was It, it was, was different. It, yeah. It's, no, we, we it even was everything but sexual. There are eyewitnesses who said that even with the Tsarina, he was flirtatious. And they said that she could be back. But I don't think it ever crossed that threshold. And, and as we talked about early in the episode... She loved her husband. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And she was and she was devoutly religious. Yeah. And and and, and when your husband is yeah. next to God, how, like how, even you ain't even fucking that. Right. How, yeah. how how many times did she how many times did she spurn his engagement? And and this is a woman who yeah. believes that all of Russia's troubles because, are her fault because God is pissed at her. Right. For whatever reason. Yeah, she's yeah. she's not going to go out of her way to anger God. No. By banging a 
big beardy monk from Siberia. But he was a sharp dresser. He did. Uh, he spent all of his money on like oh, brandy yeah. and awesome clothes. <laughs> and he had beards just like ZZ yeah. Top. Now, future events that we'll cover next episode will help throw the idea that Alex would never have an affair with Rasputin into doubt in the public eye, as with the tabloid reporting at the time, as the first rumbles of rumor about an affair between the two would show up in the press about the very end of the 19 knots. but this would grow and grow and grow to become a public affairs beast that could not be fed. Now, I want to preview our next episode with a letter from Alexandra to Rasputin, the tone of which gives us an idea of just how these rumors could take off in the public perception of just what he was doing in the palace with the royal family. I thought we were supposed to do this post-credit. Quote, <laughs> quote, My beloved and unforgettable teacher, savior, and mentor, how tiring it is for me without you. My soul is calm and I can rest only when you, my teacher, are seated next to me and I kiss your hands and lay my head on your blessed shoulders. Oh, how easy things are for me then. Then I wish for only one thing, to fall asleep. Fall asleep forever on your shoulders, in your embrace. Oh, what happiness it is just to feel your presence near me. Where are you? Whither have you flown? It's so difficult for me, such longing in my heart. But you, my beloved mentor, don't say a word to Anya about my sufferings without you. Anya is good, she is kind, she loves me, but don't tell her of my sorrow. Will you soon be here near me? Come soon. I am waiting for you, and I am miserable without you. Give me your holy blessing, and I kiss your blessed hands, and I love you for all time. To be fair, that could also just be a Christian rock song from the late 1990s. Oh yeah, a little. Jars. She wrote that. She wrote that in a laundromat in Dallas. Little, little yeah, little DC talk, little jars of clay or something. Yeah. So striper. Yeah, and so this excerpt better illustrates than anything else in this episode just how there was no good way to separate Rasputin and the Romanovs. Rasputin was helping the family to weather a storm and keep the air alive and the Romanov line continuing, but far, far greater problems are on the horizon. As the 1900s became the 1910s. Rasputin's behavior would move from the curious into the realm of the outrageous. And this would reflect very poorly on the people who had given him a position of power and influence and would create a very unique set of challenges for Nicholas's regime. But to follow would also be another storm, one of apocalyptic proportions, one that would smash the old order with the mailed fists of industrialized global warfare. One that would put Grigory Rasputin, the Romanov dynasty, and the existence of Russia itself into mortal peril, which we will discuss in our penultimate episode, part five on Grigory Rasputin. And that's part four, guys. What do we think? I think this is where the mm. series is really going to find its legs. Not yeah. that it's been dull or bad or anything up to this point, but the next two are... This, these are the, the parts where, honestly, I think Doug Smith does the best work with. Yes. Where he finally separates fact from fiction. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, think of basically every, everything that we're going to read, except for his book, is just kind of a collection of hearsay. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, it's, it's, and they're usually like, well, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe she, he, was, he was taken down the Tsarina. Like, eh, who knows? Who knows? Right, but no, yeah. It, like... Yeah, but that's... 
Mr. Smith definitely does the work here. Yeah. Well, and, and an interesting part of this research process, because we were using so many texts, has been, and this has been a challenge for me, of figuring out what do I write when I kind of come up with what we're going to bring up in these episodes. Right. And it's, I kind of have to look, I look for the commonalities in all our sources. Yeah. What are they all talking about? Where do they all kind of cross over? Where do they all have the same thing to say? And, and and I think it's worth mentioning, like especially Douglas Smith, they will each source will bring up specific, you know, anecdotes or details that are worth mentioning. But I kind of have to put together where everybody kind of knows what the truth is. And God, that's difficult with this story. And it's about to get a lot harder in part five because number one, the pace is going to pick up, the antics are going to get a lot more outrageous, and the stakes get a lot higher. Well, and you have eighty years of propaganda. That you have to sift from through. an entire yep. government that you have to sift through. Well, not just one government, no, two, multiple governments, three different governments. But well, well, I'm I'm talking specifically about the Soviet More, government in, well, in, in in the sense yeah, of the, you have the late Tsarist government, you have the Soviet government, you have the post-Soviet Russian government. You also have what the French had to say about him, what the British had to say about him, because they're about to become heavily involved in the story of Rasputin, especially the Brits, especially the Brits, especially the Brits. Well, because nobody was better at espionage, right? than the Brits in the 20th century. Uh, I would argue the Israelis. Well, first half of the 20th century. In this time period, they didn't exist. Yeah, I I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're a little early on that one. Yeah, there's a little bit of golf. There's there's a golf of about a good half century between this and, like, the Eichmann kidnapping. Even that, you know. But, yeah, the stakes are about to get sky high. And we're going to be exploring... We're going to be pulling back the lens a little bit, too. We're going to be talking about some things that are happening on a global scale that play into our story, and just how that trying to play into that becomes a mistake for Rasputin and for the Romanovs. So, I mean... You know, this, this, is, this was more... This was about exploring just why Rasputin was indispensable to the Romanovs. Just why he, they connected, and just why they would defend him to... I mean, spoiler alert, the end. Um, and why it would make him so unpopular. Exactly. Yeah. And because, don't forget, I mean, nobody knows about Alexei's hemophilia. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a pretty, pretty much a state secret because if word gets out, you have the, the Tsarist regime pushing back against the populist forces of the time, against the new Duma, and they could just say, well, there's no future in this dynasty. No. Let's take them down, and that's the end of the Romanovs. So they are. This is becoming. And a, what are what age are they? Hey, just to remind us, what age are they at this point? Uh, the Romanovs at this point, uh, by the let's say we're wrapping up the story in 1910. Nicholas is 41. Alexandra's 36. Yeah, and it's not like today where yeah, a 36 year old wife is going to be making a whole lot more babies. Well, she couldn't after Alexi. Because here's the thing. With with Alexandra, every single one of her pregnancies was well, difficult. Well, you had mentioned That's, that. Yeah, we every single, that every single pregnancy was difficult. Every single delivery was very, very difficult. And Alexi was the last one. Her body had just it is, had it. It's, so. it's only a couple years removed from where this story ends. The point where like, she basically can't walk anymore. Right. Yeah. Like, her, her body so, is destroyed. Yeah, she's, she's got a lot of health issues at mm-hmm. this point. So what we're saying is this child is the future he is of the, the only, Romanov correct. dynasty. He is the only hope of the Romanov yeah. dynasty, of the future of the Romanovs, unless they want to bring in another ruler. And that could be another huge source of instability in mm-hmm. Russia. Let's 
Okay, exactly. you bring in some German prince to become the czar of Russia. What's that going to do in the public perception? Right. That's going to be apocalyptic for the, for the Russian people. Especially given what we're going to talk about in the next yeah. episode. Yeah, the, the, especially the, the cultural and civic forces that are at work that lead to just an, ex, a, just an explosion Precisely. of death and chaos that is now the backdrop for the story of Rasputin, who himself goes around the corner and becomes, as you said, a beast of chaos himself. Yeah. So The whole world is on edge at this time. The whole world is on edge at this time, and Rasputin himself is walking the razor's edge. He is. He really, really is. I mean, that's the thing. is That's what makes this story so interesting, is the whole thing tilts on a very, very fine balance for the last decade. I mean, from about 1905 forward, after you have that revolution, any little tip in either direction, and the whole thing comes crumbling down to the ground. And it will. As we can see from... Well, I mean, other parts of history. Oh, yeah. What we were talking about, you know, Franz Ferdinand's um, driver yeah, makes the wrong turn. It makes the, the right, right turn. Way, yeah. well, we'll talk about that next time. I don't yeah. want to blow the lead just yet. Okay. So, Chris. Sorry, are, if, we, are we really going to spoil what happens to Fran Ferdinand, Franz Ferdinand? I just want to keep it. <laughs> I, I just want to keep it topical. They broke up. <laughs> <laughs> but they had what? so many popular songs. They, they had a couple good albums. I like Franz Ferdinand. They were all over Sirius Satellite Radio in the late knots. I have like three other albums on my phone right yeah. now. You bastards. I love the fact that I've you used the phrase on my Spotify. Yeah. late knots. Well, it, <laughs> Four years ago. <laughs> Cialis bathtub reference. <laughs> could, could have been a Levitra reference for all we know. Yeah. Ah, you found another one. I think that's all I got. I think you're out. I tried to Google them, and it just gave me like the active ingredient. Yeah, unless I you're, you're going to talk about like CVS name, like store brand. Yeah, like pills. the Mayo Clinic's for not him. out here. Yeah. <laughs> the Roman swipes. Yeah. We're not we're not that popular yet. We're not we're not advertising for like dick medicine and those. But if anyone from Romans or for Hymns is listening, I'll drop a line. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're not to the point of we have like fourteen thousand listens now. Yeah, we're not we're not to the point of advertising stuff to make your dick harder or to help build your. For how much we talk about dick yet, you could monetize that, guys. That's actually not a bad point. I'm gonna get on the email. I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna pound some payment on this one, Kyle. Good 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 catch. So speaking of. Speaking of getting out there and being on the internet, Chris, where can people find us out there? Well, if you or someone you know uh, works for uh, Roman or for Hymns, you can email us at trrpod (laughs) at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at PodcastTRR. Follow us on Instagram at trrpod. You can find us on Facebook just by searching Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Uh, And you can join the crew at patreon.com slash trrpod. Yep, and thank you again to all of our Patreon subscribers, especially Keith Volhop, friend of the show here present. Thank you, Keith, for joining us today. Anytime. We got uh, we got two more. You, you're, you're four for six, buddy. You're four for six. You're hanging in there. I was in the army. I can withstand anything. Yeah, we haven't <laughs> we haven't cashed you out yet. All right. So just I, wait until Mike spends seven and a half minutes talking about horse penis. It's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> There's. And by the way, you did miss one reference. Andy Vance like. Andy Vance like in those late commercials with uh. That's um. Uh, uh, Sam what, Frank Southern Genics. You, uh, um, not Eugenics. Yeah, Eugenics and Nugenics are a little different. Yeah, a little different. Yeah. Well, I There's mean, way too many companies getting way too close to some really weird <laughs> phrases. Like like the Soylent uh, protein replacement oh, brand. Yeah. That's hilarious. It's I amazing. love their mint green. <laughs> How's it taste? Very from person to person. Yeah, person to person. 
Uh, I it's, it's God. I mean, they're right up. I'm yeah. You're starting to see it everywhere. Like walking through the grocery store and seeing evils of the International Jew Cookie Company. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Like it's just you know, it's, just like Grandma used to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, finally, oh my God. I finally came up with a decent joke. I've oh, just here been, we go. I, I apologize. I've just been like. A, like just delirious from lack of sleep. I am absolutely covered in poison, in poison ivy. You it are. Is, it is on top of my head. You it are is on my toes. <laughs> you are. I am like a pink with calamine lotion. Uh, no, this is actually um, zinc oxide at this point. Oh, yeah. I, I'm. I don't know what else to do. Mm. I'm just. It sucks so bad. <laughs> you, I, I was. You know what will fix it? Aspirin. <laughs> If any of you work for Bayer, <laughs> yeah, Kyle, you're gonna pick oh, see. There's our sellout no, right there. <laughs> Kyle's out here shilling for for aspirin now. <laughs> but uh, I was helping my dear mother. Uh, I, I cut her grass and I was pulling some weeds, and she said, "I think that's poison ivy." As I have it in my hand, and I was like, "Boy, I sure hope it's not." Long story and short, it is. <laughs> it long was. story short, it's now poison ivy. And if anybody wants to know how much poison ivy sucks under a beard, it's a lot. Oh yeah! Um, Just imagining you like wiping lot. the str- sweat no. off your brow with branches. Of <laughs> no, I don't see, see. Here's the whole thing: Did you bathe with it? Did Did you use the, the stick? The fucked up <laughs> part is when I was like even 25 years old, I could have rolled around in poison ivy and been totally fine. But now that you're 35, yeah, what the fuck? Yeah, like, how is that fair? Like, how am I still? Like, how am I developing allergies now? <laughs> it makes now, that, now, now that this isn't exclusively thirty-five and over podcast. Yeah. Oh, it's, no. it, oh God! No. It makes up for the fact. It makes up for the fact that from the time I was like born until I was thirty-five, I could be downwind of it and get it and get it. Yeah. And now I don't get it at all. So no shit. Piss on you. Uh, fuck. <laughs> it's like the Highlander. Like you got all my power. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, under the beard's got to be rough. Because as the person among us who most resembles Gregory Rasputin, you've got to be dying right if now. If I pop the wig on, man, that one picture was upsetting. We even have the same schnoz. Yeah, you do. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up for this time. Uh, again, thank you, Keith, for joining us. And we'll be back next time with Rasputin Part 5, where shit's going to get goofy, but shit's going to get really serious. So, uh, hold on tight, and hold fast, everybody. Nostrovia. Peace. Nostrovia.